Well, good evening. We are delighted, delighted that you are here tonight. I was just telling uh, a young lady in the audience just now that for a minute we were a little worried. Because, you know, this has been a weird winter. And then when we saw the sun shining, and usually we worry about if it's going to, the weather's going to be bad. But today it was like, oh, the sun's shining, and it's so nice, and people might get spring fever. And I don't know, and this and that. But Mr. Hill couldn't help. Everybody's here. So we really appreciate it. You, they came out for you. In fact, two young ladies were here at 6 o'clock, and we had to open the auditorium. <laughs> this is another special edition of our Brown Lecture Series, and many of you may know that this lecture series is being brought to you by a very, very generous grant from the Eddie C. and C. Sylvia Brown Family Foundation. They have, uh, that was a You may know that the Browns uh, gave the largest gift to the Innie Pratt Free Library since Mr. Pratt uh, gave his initial grant in 1882 when they gave their million dollars to endow. So what you may not know is they wanted to be anonymous. And we said, oh, no, please. It would mean so much that the first million-dollar gift since Mr. Pratt came from Eddie and Sylvia Brown. So we are honored, and they have allowed us in this lecture series under the coordination of Vivian Fisher, our uh, head of the African-American department, to present and showcase African-American authors at the library who present a wide range of ideas and information. Um, from April Ryan, Cornell West, Cora Daniels, and our special guest tonight. Um, some of the best writers and thinkers have been brought to Baltimore because of this. I uh, want just to remind you that the author's book tonight is being sold by the Ivy Bookshop, and um, Mr. Hill will be signing copies of the book after tonight's presentation. So speaking of which, we are delighted that he is here in Baltimore. Now to introduce our special guest tonight, is actually the person, not Vivian this time, though we con con she contacted Vivian and we contacted Vivian, but this person suggested that we invite him here because she is an avid, avid reader, a writer herself, and she's also someone that you see every day anchoring the news on WBAL-TV and part of their award-winning investigative team. Her guilty secret is that she reads all the time, everything, and she is a historian at heart. So please welcome Miss Lisa Robinson. Thank you, everyone. All right, um, Lawrence, we're delighted that you're here. I have been bugging this library for four years to bring you here. And I started bugging them right after I read the Book of Negroes, which was then um, released as Someone Knows My Name in the United States. And I, became, I began to tell everybody I knew about this beautiful novel. I, would walk, I remember just 
after reading it, walking around in a daze, meditating to myself about how could somebody write something so lovely and so beautiful. My daughter would get so annoyed with me when we would be out and about because I would randomly go up to people and say, you've got to read this book. It would be in the grocery store, it could be at a school event, but that's what I would do. I would share all the time. All right, enough about me. Let's tell you about Lawrence Hill. He was raised in Canada, the son of American immigrants, a black father and a white mother who moved to Canada shortly after marrying in 1953. And I think you told Mark Steiner they, they kind of ran from Washington, D.C. within 24 hours of getting married to go to Canada. <laughs> so much of the work that Lawrence does is centered or explores identity and belonging. He is the author of nine books of fiction and nonfiction. His tenth book will be out in, uh, in September in Canada and in January here in the United States, so you won't miss out. It's called The Illegal. Um, but it was the Book of Negroes which won him wide acclaim and many awards, including the Commonwealth Prize for the best book, which landed him a private meeting with Queen Elizabeth, and you will have to ask him about that yourself. <laughs> He's traveled the world um, talking about his writing and teaching. Um, Lawrence is no stranger to Baltimore. He earned his M.A. at Johns Hopkins University. He co-wrote the miniseries that we're going to see part of tonight, and it was a huge success in Canada. It was the most watched Canadian television drama in 25 years. And yes. And it brought in just over, a mil, eight, just over 8 million viewers during its um, airing or its run on BET here in the U.S. As a journalist, we're taught that your work should do one or all of these following things, make someone laugh, make people cry, or move them to do something. And I believe the art should do the same thing. The Book of Negroes did that for me, and it moved me to explore my own ancestry and learn more about slavery. Um, it made me cry, and it made me laugh, and it made me think there are happy endings and hope, a lot of hope in this world. Ladies and gentlemen, the man who does all of those things with his writing, Lawrence Hill. Thank you very much, Lisa. Every writer needs a booster like that, I've got to tell you. Uh, I want to give a special thanks to Dr. Carla Hayden, Vivian Fisher, Judy Cooper, Teresa Edmonds, Ryan O'Grady, uh, and Martha Edgerton for showing me uh, an exhibit on the transatlantic slavery th shown through book art today in the library. And thank you so much also to Eddie and Sylvia Brown for financing this event and for giving so much to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. As Lisa mentioned, I do have a family connection to Baltimore. Uh, my great-grandfather was uh, the minister at the Bethel AME Church on Druid Hill Avenue, and, and my grandfather, uh, his name was Daniel Hill, my grandfather, same name, grew up and attended Douglas uh, High School. And, uh, and then, of course, my parents married and fled to Canada, as Lisa has mentioned. So I sort of grew up with a foot in both countries and had the great honor of studying uh, and doing my master's in writing at uh, Johns Hopkins University in the, in the early 90s. And I love to seize every opportunity I can to come back to um, Baltimore. 
Tonight, we're going to show uh, one uh, 45-minute episode from the TV miniseries, The Book of Negroes. We'll do that in just a minute. And although the episode has six, the, the miniseries has six parts, we're just going to show one, which is the fourth. And although I could have shown you the first, I thought I'd show you the fourth, because the fourth episode is the one that dramatizes and explains, and through drama, the creation of the document, which is known as The Book of Negroes, a document kept by the British Navy to, to document the exodus of 3,000 African Americans from Manhattan to Nova Scotia, Canada in 1783 after serving the British on the losing side of the American Revolutionary War. And that document is so unknown, and the title's been so provocative. Initially, my American publisher didn't want to use the word Negroes in the title, even though it related to a specific historic document, that I thought you might be interested in seeing just exactly, through drama, just exactly what this document is and how it came to be made. So you'll see that in this episode, and then I'll stand up and speak a little bit about the history underpinning the novel uh, just for a few minutes and answer your questions and that'll be the evening so why don't we go ahead and show you that episode now and, and we'll continue to converse after that thank you so much Thank you so much. It was uh, fun to show you that. I find even after co-writing it and being on the sets in South Africa and Nova Scotia and having watched it a few times at various screenings around the world, I'm still affected to watch the story. It's funny how that works. Um, Aminata Diallo's migrations back and forth across the Atlantic really represent the story of the black loyalists. And it's a story that's uh, just unknown to so many people. And America and in Canada. It's a story that unites the history of African peoples in, in Africa and in uh, South Carolina, New York, Nova Scotia, United Kingdom. Uh, it's a story of movement back and forth across the ocean. When I first came across this history, again, unknown to most Canadians and Americans, I, I couldn't believe that it hadn't already been written as a novel. I couldn't believe that nobody had already seized on this story. I'd never heard before that African peoples drawn into the Americans in slavery and then coming up to Canada, some of whom had actually managed to get back to Africa in the same lifetime in which they'd been abducted from Africa. It's a story I'd never heard of before. Um, we've heard, of course, of uh, Marcus Garvey encouraging uh, peoples of African descent in the Americas to go back to Africa in the early uh, 20th century. Uh, and although he was a world-famous black man, those preachings never really uh, garnered much uh, support. He, he didn't persuade a lot of people to leave the Americas and go back to Africa. Uh, and of course, uh, a century before Marcus Garvey was preaching his Back to Africa doctrine, uh, former American slaves founded the colony of Liberia in West Africa. But more than a century before Marcus Garvey urged his Back to Africa doctrine, and decades before Americans founded the colony of Liberia, the first Back to Africa migration in the history of the Americas takes place from Nova Scotia, Canada, when 1,200 black men, women, and children set sail in 15 ships from Halifax, Nova Scotia, on January 15, 1792. People like Aminata and sailed across the ocean to found the colony of Freetown in Sierra Leone in West Africa. And when I heard about this creation of this book of Negroes and this migration from New York to Nova Scotia and then another migration and exodus 
out of Canada back to Africa. It just seemed like a novel was uh, ripe for the plucking, and all I had to do was sit down and work for five years and get it. And so, <laughs> so um, I, it was a miracle to me that nobody had known this story. And uh, having American parents who came to Canada, I heard from my earliest childhood, as I'm sure all of you heard in your earliest childhood, that first person to die in the American Revolutionary War is a black man by the name of Crispus Attucks serving the rebels. But of course, I'd never heard about the stories of the African Americans who chose to serve the British on the losing side of the war. Well, history seems to belong to the victors. And as the British lost the war, the stories of the African Americans who served them were also lost to most of our consciousness. And uh, these same British who offered in writing twice uh, freedom to any African-American man or woman who, who'd come serve them in the war ended up, as you see, evacuating 3,000 from New York. A few went to Germany. One or two went to Quebec City. handful, small handful went to the Caribbean. But 98% of the black loyalists, so-called because they were fought and were loyal to King George III during the war, moved from... New York to Nova Scotia and become known as the Black Loyalists of Nova Scotia, which is, of course, a province on the east coast of Canada. Uh, for those of you who don't know, African-Canadian history dates back pretty well as far as does African-American. The first documented slave in Canada is an eight-year-old boy from Madagascar whose name is Olivier Lejeune, who's a prisoner, who's a slave in Quebec City in 1628. Um, the first case of a black person walking free in Canada actually dates back to about 1605, 1604, when a man named Matthew de Costa, a black man from Portugal, is acting as an interpreter between French explorers and the indigenous peoples of Canada. So he's been here earlier meeting up with them. Uh, so although we have African Canadians dating back to the early 1600s, this movement of black loyalists from New York City to Nova Scotia constitutes the first massive migration of peoples of African descent into Canada. Uh, 3,000 sail in a tiny six-month window in the back half of 1783. And, uh, and they believe they're coming to Canaan. They believe they're coming to the promised land. Really, it's a Canadian version of 40 acres and a mule. Uh, they've been promised land, provisions to live off, freedom, uh, independence, in, in, as a reward for service to the British during the war. But instead, they meet with slavery, indentured servitude, uh, great poverty, uh, oppression, you know, anti-black race riots. It's a very hostile climate to... Uh, uh, African-Americans who've become African-Canadians. And the most insidious and worrisome of the uh, insults to their humanity is that they're allowed, many of them, to freeze and starve to death in the winters of Nova Scotia. So um, they're digging holes in the ground and covering those holes with the boughs of trees to survive the Canadian winters on, on our East Coast, which are, which are really wicked uh, winters. Uh, so... Um, they're so disgruntled with this mistreatment and these broken promises by the same British who saved them in New York, betrayed them in Nova Scotia, that they choose, many of them, voluntarily to leave. And they're offered the opportunity to go to Africa by British abolitionists in London, England, who, who put together a huge potload of money. Really, they assemble more money than the annual budget of the province of Nova Scotia. And this, this money is used to equip humanely 15 ships to take 1,200 men, women, and children, all black, voluntarily 
to found the colony of Sierra Leone, and so they do. And so this is the story of the Book of Negroes. This is Aminata's story, and it's a story that unites the black experience of Africa, the United States, Canada, and uh, the United Kingdom. And much, of course, is uh, imagine that, that black experiences are distinct. You have yours in Maryland, we have ours in Ontario. But this book really is about attempting to unite some of those experiences by showing these migrations that, that, that have people moving from place to place to place, really involved in a sort of intercontinental milk run. And so this is the story of the Book of Negroes and the story that I chose to dramatize in the novel and that we finally managed to um, film uh, last year, and uh, just aired this year in Canada and the States. I'll finish this short presentation by uh, just reading a minute from the novel, so you have a sense of the voice of Aminata. Of course, the, you know, the great gift to novelists is, is that you can go into a character's voice, and you can go into the, the interiority of their thought, and you can't get there very easily on film, and so the novel offers a vehicle that television doesn't, and so I wanted to really exploit that vehicle fully in the novel, and so here's uh, just a, a page of Aminata's voice as an old woman in London, where she's begun her process of writing her story, which becomes this novel, and this novel is a work of fiction, a 21st century work of fiction, but it's structured as if it were a slave narrative, and it, it sits on the, in the literary tradition of the slave narrative, which, as you know, is the first form of literature widely published in the Americas, you know, or in Canada by people of African descent. So this is a fictional slave narrative, and this is Aminata Diallo's voice opening up the novel as an old woman in London. The other day, they took me into a London school and asked if and had me talk to the children. One girl asked if it was true that I was the famous Mina D, the one mentioned in all the newspapers. Her parents, she said, did not believe that I could have lived in so many places. I acknowledged that I was Mina D, but that she could call me Aminata Diallo if she wanted, which was my childhood name. We worked on my first name for a while. After three tries, she got it. Aminata Four syllables. It's really not that hard. Aminata, I told her. She said she wished I could meet her parents and her grandparents. I replied that it amazed me that she still had grandparents in her life. Love them good, I told her, and love them big. Love them every day. She asked why I was so black. I asked why she was so white. She said she was born that way. Same here, I replied. <laughs> I can see that you must have been quite pretty, even though you are so very dark, she said. You would be prettier if London ever got any sun, I replied. She asked what I ate. My grandfather says he bets you eat raw elephant. I told her I'd never actually taken a bite out of an elephant, but there had been times in my life when I'd been hungry enough to try. I chased three or four hundred of them in my life, but never managed to get one to stop rampaging through villages and stand still long enough for me to take a good bite. She laughed and said she wanted to know what I really ate. I eat what you eat, I told her. Do you suppose I'm going to find an elephant walking about the streets of London? Sausages, eggs, mutton stew, bread, crocodiles, all those regular things. Crocodile, she said. I told her I was just checking to see if she was listening. She said she was an excellent listener and wanted me to please tell her a ghost story. Honey, I said, 
My life is a ghost story. Then tell it to me, she said. As I told her, I am Aminata Diallo, daughter of Mamadou Diallo and Sira Koulibaly, born in the village of Bayo, three moons by foot from the grain coast in West Africa. I'm a Bamana and a Fula. I'm both, and we'll, exp and we'll explain that later. I suspect I was born in 1745 or close to it. Let me begin with a caveat to any and all who find these pages. Do not trust large bodies of water and do not cross them. If you, dear reader, have an African hue and find yourself led toward water with vanishing shores, seize your freedom by any means necessary and cultivate distrust of the color pink. Pink is taken as a color of innocence, the color of childhood, but as it spills across the water in the light of the dying sun, do not fall into its pretty path. There, right underneath, lies a bottomless graveyard of children, mothers, and men. I shudder to imagine all the Africans rocking in the deep. Every time I've sailed the seas, I have the sense of gliding over the unburied. Some people call the sunset a creation of extraordinary beauty and proof of God's existence. But what benevolent force would bewitch the human spirit by choosing pink to light the path of a slave vessel? Do not be fooled by its pretty color. Do not submit to its beckoning. Once I've met with a king and told my story, I desire to be interred right here in the soil of London, Africa, is my homeland, but I've weathered enough migrations for five lifetimes, thank you very much, and I do not care to be moved again. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much. And um, we have a few minutes, and uh, five or ten, and if you have a few questions, I'd be happy to answer. I'll also mill about outside and chat with you individually. Sir? I'll repeat your question so everybody can hear it. I purchased my book in Canada in 2011, and at the same time, it's an article in a Canadian paper. So what I was wanted to know, what I wanted to know was how did um, the title change back to the Book of Negroes? Because in the USA, it was under a different title when it was originally printed. Yes, when the book came out in the States and in Canada, both in 2007, the American publisher had initially promised to publish it as the Book of Negroes, but backed away once uh, bookstores refused to order the book with that title. Uh, you know, bookstores place advance orders before going to print, and they couldn't get a decent print run because no bookstores here would order it. So they backed away from the title and it ended up being called Someone Knows My Name in the United States. Um, but finally, <laughs> this is the ultimate irony, when BET brought out the miniseries as the Book of Negroes, and I was worried that they might back away too, but they didn't. To my great pleasure, they didn't. They held to the title and uh, the title has a reason and, and you know I'm proud of that that is sort of anchored in history that we've forgotten. You can see the Book of Negroes in the New York Public Library or in the National Archives of D.C. You can see it there, as well as in the National Archives of uh, the U.K., where the original is, or online. But finally, uh, with the uh, television miniseries coming, the American publisher accepted my request, which is great, to reissue it as the Book of Negroes. And so now Norton has published it as of January as 
the book of Negroes in the state. So that's a quick answer to a, a, a very interesting, you know, political question. Uh, thank you. Yes. What's the future of the miniseries? Oh, well, it's it, it will be rebroadcast several times. Once they spend all that to to make it, they like to broadcast it <laughs> as, as several times because they've already paid for it, so they might as well use it. And so they will, which is great. Uh, so it'll be rebroadcast. I don't have the schedule for when it's coming out in DVD in a few days. You know, in the states on April the seventh, it'll be available in American retail outlets. Um, so you can get it. Um, you know, in a DVD package as of April the 7th. And, uh, um, but, and it's, you know, being sold to networks in, in various countries in, around the world. But I, I'm afraid I don't have a schedule for when it will be rebroadcast by BET. But, but again, the DVD will be available on the 7th of April. Thank you. That's because I was looking for the DVD. Beautiful brother here said Netflix has it. Oh, okay, there you go. I didn't know Netflix already had it. There you go. Yeah, usually there's a slight delay, and I, I, I wasn't aware they already were. Good, great. Yes, I, I see a hand right in the middle there. Yes, uh, yes, I did a fair bit of research about the term, and I'm sure you know more than than I do, but I seem to have spent my life kind of coming to terms with that word. And of course it was given to us as opposed to a term that was selected. What I find most interesting, I mean, we could spend an hour on that subject, and I'm sorry that I can't, but what I find most interesting about the word Negro is, is its kaleidoscopic evolution. And I think it's just to watch the evolution of the word over the course of time tells us so much about race and, and the futility of language that purports to identify a person by race. My father born in Independence, Missouri in 1923, proudly called himself a Negro right through the 1960s and 70s. And uh, uh, he was appointed the chairman of the, of the first Human Rights Commission in Ontario, in Canada, which was in Ontario. And even then, our national newspaper called the Globe and Mail ran a headline in 1971 that said, Commission Appoints Negro Chair. And they didn't attempt to be rude or disrespectful. It was 71, and it was still considered a fairly neutral respectful term but times change and with the you know with the black power movement and uh, black pride movement the word negro falls out of use just look at the kind of the difference between what malcolm x had to say about it and the way martin luther king proudly used it even there you find the the beginnings of a very profound difference of opinion about whether that word belongs in our com- common parlance or not so it's evolved a great deal but i didn't use it disrespectfully in the title i used it historically i used it to resurrect a forgotten document. I mean, it sort of goes without saying that I don't walk around using Negro as, as in my day-to-day language. But I thought it would be appropriate in the title of the book because I was trying to bring people back to an awareness of a history that we've, that we've forgotten. And I, some, Canadians seem to be a little less troubled by the word than Americans. And I sometimes joke that in Canada, if you use the word Negro, somebody will look at you with eyebrows raised as if you haven't opened a newspaper in half a century. But in Brooklyn, you know, where much of my family is, you use the word Negro, you'll get your nose broken. So it's, it's, a, much, it's a much more explosive word in the States, in my experience, than, than it is in Canada. But still, given the history of the document, 
which you can find online or in your own libraries in this country, including the National Archives of the United States of America. I felt it was a, a, a legitimate title, and, and I'm glad that it's been resurrected by, uh, by Norton after the release of the miniseries. Yes, in the far back there, I see a hand. How did I sort of research and put together this story? Well, some of it, you know how it is with writers. You're researching when you don't even know you're researching just by your lived experiences. Um, I think uh, John Irving said that if you've worked in an orchard and you become a novelist, you'll probably end up writing about an orchard because you've had that experience. And so um, one of the first... Uh, my parents sort of grew up in this racial crucible, and neither parent could avoid being reminded on a daily basis of their different races, you know, in the 20s and 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, when they were young people. And um, they finally left uh, the States after they married, the day after, and, and promptly settled in a totally white suburb of Toronto. And, and thanks, Mom and Dad, that's great. That really situates us perfectly as children. Um, it, but they were fleeing something, and I, I understood what they were doing. They settled in a kind of a middle-class, white, entirely white suburb of Toronto, which probably is why I became a writer, because I was trying to figure out who I was and how I was put together. And the other thing I started doing, apart from reading fiction, African-American fiction and essays and poetry as a young boy to start to find myself, since I wasn't finding myself on the streets of Toronto, I started, started traveling to West Africa as a volunteer. It's begun a sort of a 35-year experience for me working as a volunteer with a nonprofit group in Canada that works with girls and women in sub-Saharan Africa. And um, so I started traveling as a volunteer to Niger and Cameroon and Mali as a young man. And um, this is before, you know, about uh, 10 years or so, 12, before I came to study at Hopkins. And um, those experiences marked me forever. And I met midwives who were catching babies with nothing but, you know, but, but a little home and no running water or electricity and just using their hands and um, and nothing else and uh, I met people of phenomenal dignity and, and, and I lived in villages much like the one in which Aminata is born and you see dramatized in episode one or you see in the first pages of this book and so working as a volunteer in rural West Africa planted I think the seeds of this novel before I'd even written or published a page of fiction. Uh, uh, so part of it was just travel and working, and another part of it, of course, was actively beginning the, the book. I started thinking about it before I'd published any fiction, but I wrote six books first because I just wasn't ready uh, to tackle this one. It's written in a woman's voice, and the story is so big that I just knew I wasn't ready, so I sat on it for a while. As for the research, well, I reread sort of all the major um, nonfiction describing the, the, the breadth of the history of the transatlantic slave trade just to make sure that I understood the basics, and, and so I was often rereading things that I'd read earlier. And then I started drilling down to things more specific, like how did African-American women wear their hair in South Carolina in the 1700s, or what techniques were used to extract, you know, indigo dye from, from, from uh, 
you know, plants in, in South Carolina or how are women catching babies or inducing abortions or, you know, as midwives or if they wish to induce an abortion, what, what, what were people doing uh, to live and, and, and what did letters look like? I started reading slave narratives and letters by men and women, black and white, who witnessed the unfolding of the slave trade in Africa as well as, of course, in America. So, and then I just started contacting experts. My first job out of university was to be a newspaper journalist, so I'm not shy about calling up people. So the sections of the book that were highly specific about something, I'd start contacting world experts in, in those areas. You know, it turns out that the leading expert in the world about African-Americans' hair in the 17th hundreds in South Carolina is a white guy from Australia whose, whose name is Shane White and uh, but he's published look him up you'll he, look up Google Scholar whatever it's called you'll find him all over the place he's published widely and he and so he's got you know the most scholarly articles about hairstyles and hair techniques you know in the 1700s and in the deep south fascinating anyway so I just read like crazy I spent a lot of time in academic databases and talking to experts and making sure I hadn't committed a huge mistakes, but it was exhausting, and uh, I sometimes joked that, you know, if I didn't finish the book, it would kill me, and so, uh, 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 but I did promise myself that I wouldn't ever just research. I had to begin writing from day one and, and not use research as, as an excuse to do nothing, which many writers, myself included, sometimes do, and so I just wrote from day one and researched from day one. Lisa. Oh, yeah. Thank you. What did the miniseries do for black actors and actresses? It was an amazing experience. And uh, thousands of people were hired, you know, worked extras, sound people, light people, uh, actors, of course, uh, uh, directors and uh, producers. Uh, Africans were employed in Africa, and, and uh, of course, many Americans and some British and many African Canadians, too. And it's it's really hard for for. African American and African Canadian actors to get good work, and it was amazing how many people came forth. I think they interviewed—I can't remember how many hundreds of people auditioned for the role of Aminata. But Ingenue Ellis is a Mississippi farm girl who got the role. She was in The Help, so some of you might recognize her. But uh, she was amazing, and uh, so it was really—it felt really great to sort of give this work to people that wouldn't normally get such good work and, and uh, to, to give some good acting roles. Um, it was very exciting and to go to this. I'd never been on a film set before, so I had a lot to learn. And the most important thing in the film set is to stay out of the way because there's so many, so many things going on and it moves so slowly. You have to have a lot of patience. But um, it was very exciting to watch it come together and to see thousands of people get employment you know, as a result of it. And uh, so in this little uh, episode you saw, my daughter was one of the extras in the in the New York scene. It was, she had a riot, you know, um, doing that. She was a fishmonger's wife in New York City, 14-year-old girl at the time. Anyway, um, it was fun. It was a, it was a really a great, ex- great experience. I'd like to uh, read another screenplay. One more, one more question? Okay. How did it come from a book to a movie? You were approached, you were excited. How did it move from book to movie? And was I excited? Yeah, well, I turned down a few offers um, that didn't seem right. You, you know, 
I was uh, having lunch today with uh, Mary Jo Salter in the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins University, and we were actually joking about that. And when you write a novel, you know, you're responsible for what's good in it, and you're also responsible for what's bad in it. And, And you're basically in charge. Sure, you'll have an editor, but if it's a good relationship, you're in charge and you're responsible for the work, and that's it. I mean, you're guided and coached, prodded, cajoled by the editor, but it's your work entirely. But when you're a screenwriter on a miniseries, you're on the bottom of the totem pole, and you've got like 15 people more important than you, and you have to swallow your ego, and you you don't control everything. You don't own the the ship or even steer it. Um, I did have the fortune of co-writing, so that allowed me to help shape the story from the ground up. And even though I had no legal sway, because you sign away your rights, to you waive your... Moral rights, that's a legal term, your moral rights. You waive those in the first clause of any contract because no investor's going to spend $15 million only to have the author gumming up the work. So they need to know that they're free to do whatever they want with your story. So you have to sell it wisely. Sell it to somebody that you respect and you believe will do a good job. So the first thing is to sell wisely to somebody you have faith in. And I just happened to be lucky. I met some great people and uh, a very prominent African-Canadian filmmaker named Clement Virgo uh, who who understood my story. He's an immigrant uh, to Canada from Jamaica, grew up very poor in Toronto, but now is one of our best-known filmmakers. And uh, he seemed like a great guy to sort of team up with. So we co-wrote and... um, it took five years uh, to for really not to, to write, but it took five years for them to get the money together and to produce it. And and I was working on and off for five years, mostly off. Like you'd work hard for five days and do nothing for six months, and then work hard for <laughs> do, do, because they wouldn't need anything. And then suddenly we need something. You know, we have to show something to the network, so work hard for two weeks and do nothing for three months. And so it was sort of on and off uh, for for five years, but just intense for the last year or so when it was you know really kind of hard hard work yeah so that's the beginning of an answer and thank you for asking thank you thank you very much